So, at the studio with Kitchen Theory, we have Gustav Kuhn. Gustav is a reader in psychology at Goldsmiths and author of Experiencing the Impossible, the Science of Magic. He's also the president of the Science of Magic Association and a member of the Experimental Psychology Society and the Magic Circle. Today, we're going to be discussing sensory dining, the science of magic, and how the two may possibly relate. Uh, Gustav, thank you so much for coming into the studio. Uh, we, we obviously got connected through Professor Charles Spence um, at Oxford University, and I just found out now that even though the three of us are in the process of publishing a paper together, you've only actually known him for roughly about six weeks or so. So that paper's come about pretty quick. It's been very, very rapid. <laughs> <laughs> so what you, you study the psychology of magic and how what what kind of a science is there behind or what is the relationship between between psychology and uh, magic well i mean psychology underpins all of our human experiences but uh, magic is quite unique in that it allows us to experience the impossible and by doing so it deals with some of the most fundamental psychological and philosophical questions it deals with consciousness it deals with deception beliefs free will and yet I think unlike most other art forms it's received relatively little scientific interest and what we're trying to do is using scientific methods as a way of understanding why and how magic works because by exploring some of these principles we can learn a lot about how the human brain works so magicians have developed lots of really clever psychological tricks to fool us and create impossible experiences and as psychologists we're generally interested in understanding why our brain is tricked because once you understand why your brain is tricked you can work out how the brain actually works and so a lot of our research tries to understand the psychological and neurological mechanisms that underpin a lot of these illusions and how does this research, what, what, what could it possibly help us with understanding that we could find maybe practical or functional in a day-to-day -day world? Like what, what are we learning from this? So to give you an example, with the research that we're doing, let's say with Professor Spence, understanding people's sensory relationship with food in some way may help us with designing maybe better food experiences or the, the uh, understanding that we have with let's say people's perception of color and taste or sounds or smells and how that relates to their experience of food could let's say help us with developing let's say better food for children or better food experiences uh, for the elderly in care homes understanding the psychology of magic what, what would that lead to better magic or is it is there another purpose behind it i mean the main purpose of this is not to improve magic we are studying magic to help magicians as well but that's very much a small sideline project mm -hmm. our main motivation is to find ways in which we can apply the knowledge that we gain from understanding the science of magic to other domains as well so for example we are studying misdirection and magicians ability to manipulate what you're seeing and what this tells us is that we experience much less than we intuitively think that we do and this has got very important implications for road safety for example or any other kind okay. of task where your attention is being distracted 
we can think about magic as manipulating your conscious sensory experiences as well. And so in a similar way that Charles Spencer's work on cross-modal perception has important implications for dining experiences, some of these subjective experiences could likewise be implemented in a dining experience. Um, or human-computer interaction. So we are now using magic, uh, trying to understand some of these magic techniques to see whether we can implement these principles in a gaming environment or enhancing our human-computer interactions as well. Or even the deep-rooted emotional experiences that magic elicits. So we've got a project where we trying to see whether we can apply magic, so the experience that magic elicits, but also the process of learning to perform magic, the impact that that can have on people's mental health and well-being. So the overarching aim of the Magic Lab is to try and understand the psychological mechanisms that underpin magic and then apply this knowledge to domains that are outside the traditional entertainment industry. And to what extent would you say magic is a multi-sensory experience. So I, well, I guess when I think of magic, I think of a lot of it being visual, um, maybe uh, tactile in some way, sound probably playing a role, but would you say that it extends into the other senses or that it's a multi-sensory? Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question because a lot of magic is visually based. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that other sensory experiences don't play a role in magic. Uh, most magicians don't perform in silence, they use music or they talk, so that automatically incorporates the auditory um, domain. You can use other, so tactile sensory experiences, uh, especially close-up magic that happens very close up. Um, magic can happen inside the spectator's hands. Uh, or if you think about a pickpocket, for example, where the pickpocket won't just exploit loopholes in your visual perception, but also your tactile perception as well. Sensory sort of taste, less so, I'm less aware. So, but although a lot of these other sensory domains play an important role in creating the magical experiences, I would argue that most magic is very heavily visual based. Um, and there's some interesting performances that are carried out for blind people, for example. So it doesn't mean that I think you can have magic that can tap into other sensory dimensions, but 99% of the magic is performed for the visuals. And so based on, I guess, the paper that you, I and Charles had, um, had uh, put together, it was really interesting to see that throughout history, food and magic seem to have kind of coexisted in terms of they're both really popular forms of entertainment. Um, magic, in many cases, typically kind of is performed in uh, for audiences that are dining or eating. That seems to be a popular um, uh, kind of form of entertainment as part of a dining experience. But the two don't ever seem to have really come together in a meaningful way up until now. No, and I think that's a really interesting question in terms of why, because throughout magic, or definitely in modern times, magic and dining have gone very closely together, but I think they've been on very much parallel tracks rather than actually interacting with each other. So today, 
the bread and butter work for most working magicians is table hopping magic or performing at receptions where you've got people dining and then between courses a magician will come and perform some card tricks or some other magic tricks um, or in bars. So bar magic is quite a popular form of magic as well. So you've got magic performed in dining and culinary experiences but also the actual props that magicians use as well so magicians will perform with spoons forks um or or fruit or any i mean any object you can think of if i think back on my i mean during my magic my general sort of my typical magic repertoire i will make lemons appear and i borrow a, a note a banknote and that appears signed inside a kiwi fruit. These are all culinary items. And yet, I can't think of many magic tricks or experiences where the magic and the dining properly complement each other. And I think that would be something that's really interesting to explore. Well, I think one interesting um, point that Professor Spence had highlighted, or maybe it was uh, you, was about a magician called David Devant who um, they had a show entitled A Feast of Magic at St. George's Hall in London. And one of his tricks, he brought onto stage an ordinary-looking kettle and moving to a tray of glasses, he poured out a dozen uh, glasses in quick succession of sweet gin, claret, uh, port, chartreuse, water, and a few other... Milk, I think, was what he um, ended it on. So I guess food has kind of played a role in in that sense and people got to taste it but I don't think as chefs maybe we've brought uh, magic um, or the, the, the kind of more technical aspects of magic into what we do but I think food and magic again this is what we were talking about earlier I think there's something interesting about the two in terms of they're all about transformation there's uh, there's there's something very important about the amount of effort and time that goes into and practice and skill that goes into creating a great magic trick and I think there's something very similar or parallel there when it comes to producing a great dish there's an awful lot if you want an, a beautiful dish of food the holy grail is doing something really simple or it, it, it at least appears simple and I think in order to do that, you need that skill, that practice, and an awful lot of work has gone in to create something that looks simple, and there's something magical about that. Yeah, I think the, the parallels between magic and cooking are very striking. If you think about the magical transformation, a simple object, um, simple ingredients that you then magically transform into a beautiful dish, so there's that side of it. In terms of the amount of work and thinking that can go behind, a dish it's similar to a magic trick as well a magic trick often will appear very simple but has taken years of practice and thinking and theorizing behind it um, but then also the whole performance aspect and the multi-sense sort of the, the multi-sensory experience of dining as well in that of course you don't just taste the food with your taste buds but it's also a visual experience um, you want to have a dish that looks nice the presentation plays a very important role in the dining experience and that is really just an illusion it's an illusion that's very similar to the illusion that the magicians are trying to create so one dish that I think we do that so I was watching your Google talks and um, 
you talked about the duck and rabbit illusion, which was the inspiration behind one of the dishes that we have on our menu. What interests you in a visual illusion like that? What's interesting about the duck-rabbit illusion is that it illustrates the importance of the way that our brain really interprets sensory information. We, we think of vision as simply being about capturing information with our eyes, but of course vision, as well as all other sensory experiences, are experienced by our brain rather than the primary sensory organs. And what the duck illusion illustrates is that you can interpret the same situation in very different ways. Uh, so you, you look at it, and either you see it as a duck or you see it as a rabbit. Um, although the visual world, the, the, the physical world hasn't actually changed, your experience of the world is dramatically drift different. And what this illustrates is that our experience of the world is much more subjective than we intuitively think it is. And since it's subjective, we can start playing around with it. And that's what magicians do. Um, they manipulate that conscious experience um, so that they can create the illusion of impossibility. See, that's an interesting point because a few times now you've mentioned about this idea of kind of manipulating the senses and I guess we have been and I guess because coming from a food background you're super aware of this idea of not wanting to manipulate people or at least um, you know for us I guess our approach is to look at how augmentations or changes in the sensory environment can in some way influence people's perception of flavor but I guess as chefs you tend to want to steer away from this idea of manipulation. It doesn't really have a very good connotation. Maybe making yesterday's or last week's fish a little fresher by putting, let's say, the sounds of the sea on and uh, doing something like that wouldn't really be the goal. The goal would be, I guess, for us to enhance what is already uh, kind of great produce in some way. Why is it that people will accept manipulation in one kind of art form so readily? What is it about magic that allows us that we want to be deceived? We don't want to when it comes to sitting down in a restaurant, but when it comes to sitting down and being entertained by a magician, we willingly want to be deceived. Why? I mean, I'm not sure whether that is, whether there's that much of a difference, because although you may, I mean, maybe it's just semantics, because of course what you're doing as a chef is very similar to what you're doing as a magician. I mean, you are deceiving the audience or the diner. Um, you just don't call it deception when you put the food on a plate in a beautiful way. You are playing with their expectations and you're manipulating the way that they will afterwards enjoy their meal. And in some ways magicians are doing exactly the same thing. But I think there's a Intuitively, we think, well, we don't like to be deceived. And magic is a very weird art form in that you are watching someone who's blatantly lying to you. I mean, when I'm performing a magic trick, I'm very open about the fact that I am deceiving my audience, and yet people enjoy that. Um, but I think there's the same in a lot of art forms. When you go to the cinema, you go and watch a film, you know that it's not real, and you are allowing yourself to be deceived. And I can imagine it's the same in a dining experience as well. When you've got your pork sausage, well, you want to be deceived because you don't really want to see the pig on your on your plate. Like, so I think um, I don't think it's the case that we don't like to be 
deceived when you ask someone, well, do you like being lied to or do you like being deceived? Well, the, the intuitive answer is no, but actually the more that we learn about how the human brain works, we've also come to realize that there's lots of situations in which we are completely willing to accept certain forms of deception. If you think about most social interactions are based on a certain level of untruths as well. We often use little lies to facilitate a lot of our social interactions. And so it doesn't mean that deception, I mean, deception has got, manipulation has got very negative connotations and because they can be used to exploit people. But in actual fact, a lot of the time we use these forms of manipulations um, to enhance people's experiences. So I don't think deception needs to be considered as being a purely negative construct. And when it comes to, let's say, the idea of entertaining people and um, how important is emotional engagement? Because at the dining table, engaging people emotionally, taking them on that journey is super important. And I remember um, a little while ago, <clears throat> as a team, we were thinking about all the ways all the different emotions that you could take people through as part of this kind of journey. And the obvious ones that stand out are kind of nostalgia and happiness and fun and very positive kind of emotions that you want to stir in people. But we also wanted to tap into emotions that were maybe a little less explored during dining experiences. So things like disgust. Now, not in a way that we actually want to make people feel disgusted by what they're eating. The food, actually, if you're playing with an emotion like disgust, the food has to be really, really great uh, to, to kind of balance it all out. But um, it's, it's just eliciting that notion or that, that in the mind more than actually in the mouth. So it's not disgust about what they're actually putting in their mouth. That tastes delicious, but it's maybe a perception. Uh, so, you know, even if you look at one of the dishes that we have is based around jellyfish. So just using that as an ingredient because of the perception that most people have about jellyfish and the connotations that they have linked to jellyfish, there is an element of disgust that comes into their mind when they first think. It's the same with insects, let's say. There's an initial hesitance for most people, especially Western palates, especially here in London. Um, something like insects or jellyfish seem a bit obscure. Um, so there is that kind of initial uh, hesitance towards it, but then we get them to overcome that by tasting something delicious. Fear is another one that we wanted to work with and we thought that's something that there's all sorts of things with food that people are afraid of. I mean, we have so many fears linked to food, um, which for me as well even comes down to something very innate where even if you put a little bit of syrup or uh, something sweet on a baby's lips, they'll try and take it in because it's energy. If you put something bitter, we'll try and kind of expel it. There's all sorts of things that we, uh, sh we, we dislike about food. So fear was another one that we wanted to tap into. Again, it wasn't actually making people feel fearful, but it was just bringing that emotion into the mind. How does this work with magic? I mean, there's two, two parts to this question, really. I mean, the, the first was an engagement, um, and that's the key in magic. You can't perform magic without people actually engaging in what you are doing. And so you are taking, 
you are taking your audience on a journey and that is completely necessary because as a magician it's impossible for me to misdirect a person's attention if they're not attending to what you're doing in the first place so that level of engagement is essential for any magic trick to work and the emotions are a fundamental role play a fundamental role in any magic experience um, some magicians play around with emotions much more so than other other magicians and I think your idea of exploring negative emotions is a really interesting one because magic in some ways it should be a negative experience I mean you mentioned the deception but also it can be incredibly confusing as well it can be quite frightening as well and I think one of the things that really captivates people about magic is not just the the, the humor or the funny sort of the funny emotional experiences but it's some of these negative emotional experiences as well and the key to this is being able to embrace these experiences within a safe environment um, if you think about the lying um, if I'm talking to you now if I'm just lying to you you wouldn't really like this I mean it's that would be it'll feel like a quite an offensive experience whilst if I'm telling you okay look I'm going to show you a magic trick as soon as I've set those parameters of framing this as a magic performance, then anything is possible and any forms of deception and lying are completely acceptable. And the key to this is being able to experience these negative emotions within a safe environment. If you can do that, um, then these negative, these negative experiences and emotions can be experienced as something very positive in the same way you go and watch a horror film for example you see some really negative really horrendous things if you'd see them on your way back from the cinema that would be very unpleasant but because you know that you're in a movie theater it's a safe environment and so you can actually embrace these negative experiences and it's probably the same with the jellyfish as well, if I'm walking down on the beach in Cornwall and there's a jellyfish lying on the beach, there's no way I would try that because it looks absolutely disgusting. Um, but if you're in a dining experience where you feel, okay, I'm safe, I'm not going to be poisoned by any of this, um, it's likely to taste nice, then I think playing around with these emotions could be can be really exciting in the same way that that's what magic does and that's what all good art does. It, it elicits strong emotional experiences. They can be positive, but also negative. If you can embrace them in a safe environment, that can be a very powerful psychological force. And you mentioned an interesting thing there about kind of magic and art. And I'm sure there are many magicians that, that feel like many chefs that see what they do as, a, as an art form, that, that there's so much detail and practice and learning and technique and method that go into this and so how um, can we bring magic into the dining experience in some way do we need years and years of practice and training or are there elements of psychology and magic that could be brought into dining experiences by those who aren't magicians well to become an expert magician takes many years um, we ran a study interviewing about a hundred professional magicians and it takes on average about 15,000 hours of practice to become a professional magician. I tried to do this calculation myself and I think I probably spent about 20,000 hours practicing magic tricks. Um, but that is not to mean that, I mean some tricks are really 
difficult, some require a lot of thinking behind them, but actually once you've worked it out, once you've got the recipe for this, you can teach this to other people as well. So in some of our work, we're interested in looking at the impact that learning to perform magic can have on people's self-esteem. And um, we teach we teach people a magic trick. It takes about 15 minutes or so to teach the magic trick, and then they can actually perform it. And that is quite a powerful transformation where they get to see a magic trick that they feel is impossible, there's no way they could do it, and we teach it, and okay, it's not great, um, but they can do something that appeared completely impossible beforehand. And they are indeed, there's lots of self-working magic tricks that can be performed um, relatively easily. This is why magic is also used in theatre as well. You don't have to be an expert sleight-of-hand magician to create all types of magic. They are self-working magic tricks, but if you perform them, in the appropriate context can actually elicit some very powerful experiences. Because the um, David Devon, the uh, magic trick that we were talking about with the kettle that poured the various different liquids, I mean, that seems like a front of house, a great front of house uh, kind of sommelier's um, magic trick, right? Yeah, it's a great trick. <laughs> I mean, I don't actually know how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> I was just offered um, I was just offered a little booklet that describes it so you can buy it online, um, the method. Um, I don't know how much skill is involved in that. Um, but yeah, there's lots of magic tricks that, um, that really don't involve that much skill and appear very impressive. Actually, that begs an interesting question. When you watch magic shows or do you have a relatively kind of do do you try and analyze how things have been done is it quite obvious in some cases or how uh entertaining is it for you i love watching magic and most magicians love watching magic as well so the um the appeal doesn't go away we look out for different things um a lot of magic tricks i will know how they are done but then i was and that, but then I always love being surprised and fooled by other magic tricks as well. And I guess it's a bit like you as a chef as well. I mean, I'm assuming that you, when you go to a restaurant, you will taste and experience a meal in a very different way to the way I do. Um, and uh, it just gives you a different appreciation for the art form. Well, drawing that parallel as well, as a chef, I love going out and uh, trying you know, other places. And as you said, there's, there's a certain part of it as well as just enjoying seeing how other chefs use ingredients and, and looking at the combinations and so on and so forth. Um, in the world of gastronomy, there's constantly, I guess, chefs are constantly looking for new and interesting methods and techniques in the kitchen. And the last 20 years have really opened up um, a lot of opportunities because of more of a scientific perspective being taken in the kitchen. So really having molecular gastronomy is probably a popular term for it, but this idea of taking on board a more scientific perspective on cooking. So that's taking great ingredients, never about kind of taking average ingredients and doing something with science to make them better, but taking great ingredients, but just because of the science, knowing how to handle them better and prepare them, cook them, um, to bring out the best in them. A lot of chefs are looking for new, interesting, fun ways of bringing foods to the table and new techniques. Is that the same with magic? Are people constantly looking for new ways 
to uh, engage in new tricks. Is that the case? Yeah, there's a. I mean, there's been a constant evolution of magic tricks really since the 15th century. Um, we go to magic conventions where we attend lectures by master magicians giving new takes on old tricks but also developing new techniques as well and I think one of the really big differences or big revolutions in magic has been the internet for magicians um, a lot of magicians are very scared of secrets being revealed online but actually, fact I think that online revolution has really turbocharged the development of a lot of magic tricks so if I think of myself I mean I grew up I was born in the 1970s, uh, before the internet, and as a kid I just went to loads of libraries and bookshops to get f average magic books, and it took a long time for me to get taken up into magic societies and then get to read about more expert types of magic tricks from expert books. Now it doesn't say anyone can go online and you can type in magic in youtube or find tutorials yeah. online and uh, and that has really accelerated the development of new tricks but also just the way that the young kids are now learning magic tricks i mean i, I watch young kids performing their sleight of hand and they are far better than i ever was um simply because they managed to access all of that information from a much earlier age um which has facilitated the the learning of new magic tricks but i guess kind of like i mean i think in terms of combining magic and and gastronomy it doesn't they there is the magic as an art form and there is that really high skill level of magic performances but it's important to point out that they are a lot of tricks and in the same way that perceptual tricks can be used in magic as well or in dining that can be could potentially be implemented to create really interesting experiences and well, you mentioned um, there this idea of so if we take chefs and we try and get them to understand a little bit more about magic, could we in some way? engage people further into the dining experience through that kind of emotional engagement because you mentioned something about sympathetic magic and i like that idea earlier how could that well what is sympathetic magic first and maybe then we can take it from there so sympathetic magic is this idea that um that magical essence can be transformed into objects yeah. as well and it tries to explain a lot of our beliefs in real magic and there's several key concepts to sympathetic magic um, one of them is this law of similarity whereby like so if you've got an object that is resembles another object that in some ways they are magically connected and there were some really interesting studies back in the 1990s um, on sympathetic magic looking at this impact of negative contagion for example so if you've got a piece of chocolate that is shaped as a poo um, people generally wouldn't like to eat it um, similarly if you've got a rubber vomit on the table even though you know it's made of rubber 
um, it just feels really disgusting. Um, or some studies where they use the sterilized cockroach and drop the sterilized cockroach into someone's drink, and most people are reluctant to drink the water, even though the, the even though the cockroach has been sterilized. So this is, and the reason why we don't like don't like these objects is because of this idea of positive of negative contagion so rationally we know that the look of an object doesn't have a direct impact on the taste of it um irrationally um, or almost magically there's some magical essence that can be transmitted into that object and it changes our appreciation for those objects and so what's the positive side of this? So the positive side would be, for example, um, objects that have been endorsed by celebrities. Um, right. I mean, if you think about a T-shirt that's been worn by your sports, by yeah. your favourite sports person, uh, we value those kind of objects really highly. just an object that becomes now this, it's transformed in some way into having a greater meaning. Yeah, and our sentimental attachment to objects as well. So my wedding ring, for example, um, if I'd lose this, I could go and buy another one. I could buy an identical copy of this. Yeah, it just simply wouldn't feel the same. So that would be a form of positive contagion as well. Um, and so these are very powerful psychological principles. And again, they're, they're, especially with taste, they are incredibly important. I mean, you mentioned our problem with eating insects. Mm. Um, the main reason is if you if you see an insect, you just don't want to you just don't want to eat it. It's probably independent of the actual taste itself uh, and yet these psychological principles are very powerful and again so magic all allows us to magically transform objects and it'd be really interesting to explore whether magical essence can be um, transmitted into culinary items to see whether that changes our appreciation for them so when i mentioned something like jellyfish one of the interesting concepts behind that dish for us was this idea of kind of behavioral change because if you think about designing or wanting to encourage people to eat more nutritious sustainable foods a lot of it does come down to behavioral change as opposed to just trying to get them to switch um, their diets because you want them to enjoy food that's a that's a huge part of them uh, getting the right enjoyment satiety uh, from what they're eating but at the same time could be for various reasons health or diet or lifestyle that people want to eat um, different types of foods behavioral change is a huge part of that how important is that within um, magic and the psychology of magic this idea of kind of changing people's perceptions yeah, well, that plays a very important role. I mean, this is one of the things that we are trying to do. So one of the projects that we are looking at the moment are studying different mind control techniques, um, which is a principle known as forcing. So in a card trick, for example, I could get you to simply choose a playing card and you feel that you had a free choice. Um, but in actual fact, we can use lots of psychological tricks to get you to choose the object or the, the card that we want you to choose. Um, and one of the reasons why we're interested in understanding the psychology behind these principles is that they could be applied to get people to make more healthy, yeah, healthier choices. 
as well, or trying to change, um, just trying to change their behaviour for the better. So if you've got different foods, if you've got a whole range of different food items, how can we actually get people to choose the more healthy snack, for example? Um, now, of course, a lot of consumer psychologists have already used a lot of these principles to get you to buy the sugary stuff. Um, so is it just rediscovering these ideas and trying to apply them in the right way? Because I feel like even with the research that we do with Professor Spence, a lot of the um, ideas or, or f- concepts, hypothesis, you kind of feel in a way that big food like your 